the, uh, the principles of Elijah confronting Israel, King Ahab, and, and uh, the culture at Mount Carmel and how that we spent a lengthy time at the end of the service dedicating ourselves that we, we, would, we would step by step learn to let our heart and conscience be purged from the cultural things that grieve the Holy Spirit and displease Almighty God so that we could walk more and more like Jesus in this pagan sexualized culture. The second thing it's based upon is that when you study history, you discover that at the darkest, most challenging moments in history, God was doing some of his greatest work, and yet it was missed by the majority of the people. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. When the children of Israel were delivered from Egyptian slavery, how many of that generation entered the promised land? Two. Two out of maybe a million and a half people. Joshua and Caleb, right? Wow, what is up with that? Well, because the majority of them didn't see the mighty work of God in the crossing of the Red Sea, in manna from heaven, in water from a rock. I mean, they're getting heavenly food every day, and they're griping. And you know, you know what we do? We go, well, I wouldn't do that. If God gave you nothing but mac and cheese for the next 40 years, you're getting it, huh? Yeah, okay. How about, how about this? How about this? This, this? this is amazing. In the 19, late 19, uh, 19, in the late 1730s, and on in to the mid-1740s, the, f- the first great awakening hit America, preparing America for the Revolutionary War. One of the ones that just staggers me is that during the Civil War, a couple of preachers in the southern states, along with General Robert E. Lee and General Stonewall Jackson, were major instruments of revival among the southern states. There was a, a major revival going on, particularly among the, uh, the southern state soldiers. But at the same time that was going on, God took a shoe salesman, called him to become an evangelist. He was never an ordained minister, but D.L. Moody became a mighty arm of revival among the northern states. And it was a revival that continued on through the years of the Civil War and after 
and and uh, and yet the, there's so many, so many in American history have no idea that one of the greatest revivals in American history was going on during the Civil War. Another one. In 1896, in the mountain region of Tennessee and the Carolinas, a revival broke out that became a Pentecostal revival. Originally, it broke out as a holiness revival, but they began getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then in 1906, in L.A., in Azusa Street, so you got the East Coast, you got the West Coast, this Pentecostal outpouring is happening that comes across the nation preparing, preparing this nation. And it wasn't just here. It broke out in Korea. It broke out in Wales. It broke out in, um, uh, in the mainland Europe. This revival broke out because God was preparing the world for a world war that was going to break out. Yeah. Every time there's been this great darkness that has come and tremendous challenge and, and like everything is just going to be ruined, Almighty God does his greatest work and yet the majority of mankind miss it. We're living in such a day. Now, my message this morning is based on those two things. And I want to give you a little introduction before I go into it because it's going to be a different kind of message that you've heard me preach. There's going to be some words used that will appear on the screen and be used that I am not saying they're okay but I want you to see them in their historical context. I want you to see them in their historical context. I'm not saying they're okay. I'm not personally using them. They're not a part of my personal vocabulary. But I'm wanting you to see them in their historical context. Wave your hand at me if you got that. Okay? And those that are listening online, worshiping with us online... I want you to get that. And I, I apologize, those that are worshiping with us online, I haven't acknowledged you earlier than right now. It's so great to have you worshiping with us. God bless you. I, I apologize. I got so caught up in the worship earlier, I forgot to welcome you and be in a part. God bless you. And, uh, uh, and we, we, each week, there's, there's 100 or more that join us online that are part of the church family. You're just not seeing them face to face, okay? But I want you to know that this message is very, very important to what God is doing right now. God woke me up at 4.30 this morning. Well, that's my usual Sunday time of getting up. But at 4.30 when I woke up this morning, Father said, I'm changing your message. And so the message that I had prepared for today, God changed it. And, uh, and I, I got to be honest, it's going to be a challenge. I hope that my old memory will help me get through this, okay? And uh, if I have to look at my notes more often than I normally do, all of you will go, we... Thank you. <laughs> Ten of you. No, I'm kidding. It's just... <laughs> so go ahead and go to the first slide for me, if you would, please, because the message today is human race and people of color a biblical perspective. 
this is such a part of the context of our culture today. I had no intention of addressing this, but Almighty God said, son, you've got to address it because your church family must understand and must know what's going on. And so we're going to talk today about the human race and people of color and a biblical perspective. So let me ask you this question as we start. What do black slavery, the opium war of China, the Irish potato blight of 1847, the new immigration to America in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the Hispanic immigration of the late 20th and early 21st century, what do they all have in common? Well, they have these things in color. And I didn't bring my pointer today, so you're going to have to follow up here, okay? First, they search, they are in search of relief from poverty and political persecution. That's the first thing. They're in search of relief from poverty and political persecution. Secondly, assimilation challenges. They face assimilation challenges in the new country. And so they kind of tend to gather in their their group. And so through the developing of America, we had Chinatowns and we had areas. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Because they, in their assimilation, they would gather in their group because they were struggling with assimilation. They were struggling with learning the language. And so, uh, and, and it, it's it's, it's even common today when you go into some of the inner cities, you still have the, the Irish section, okay? You still have these, these various sections that, that over the decades, as, they, as we went through these seasons, they gathered in there because they, they were struggling with assimilation. Are you tracking with me? Racial prejudice. Racial prejudice. Dehumanizing attitudes. And here's the root. Sinfulness of the human heart. Sinfulness of the human heart. The sinfulness of the human heart. Those two just before, racial prejudice, the dehumanizing attitudes, they have their source in the sinfulness of human heart. Now, there's something you're going to hear that is historically dishonest. You're going to hear that white Europeans brought slavery to the American shores. That Christopher Columbus and others brought slavery into the Caribbean, into Central America, Mexico, North America. That's historically dishonest. Almost every Native American nation in Mexico, in in Central America, 
Slavery was already there among their own people. One, one Native American nation would fight against the other Native American nation, and they would, they would enslave. They would enslave one another. We didn't bring it here. I'm not saying that, that, that what happened in, in the slave trade coming to North America was good. I'm not saying that. I just think we're being historically dishonest when we don't look at it accurately. We, if we're going to truly resolve the problem, we've got to look at it with honesty and with, with accurate, not rewriting history. Amen? Yeah. Okay. These are the things that everyone faced as they emigrated to here in, in all of these. But there was one other thing that they faced. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me. They faced derogatory ethnic slurs. Derogatory ethnic slurs. And so the Chinese were called China. Or chinks. Some were called mix. Wops. And the last two. Derogatory, demeaning slurs. And they face that, and they're, and they're facing it today. Derogatory terms that was used for, in the, in the, Late 80s and early 90s, when, when people from the Slavic nations in Russia were, were immigrating here. Derogatory terms used against them. They faced persecution. I know some of them personally that faced severe persecution they were, they were, as they were moving here. White upon white persecution. Just as when you go into the inner cities today, there's black upon black, racial persecution. Human race and people of color, a biblical perspective. We are facing a situation right now in the culture around the world, but predominantly here in America, that has not been faced since the 30s and 40s. We're facing it again. We saw an outbreak of it for a, a while in the 1960s, but we are facing it in a much greater way right now. I mean, every one of us has had Black Lives Matter and Antifa in our face now for days and days and days, and it's becoming greater, okay? But it's not just there. It's not just from those from those social groups that are wanting to change the very face of America. It's inside the Christian church. We're facing it as well. An example, okay? The theologian James Cone, he, he has said this, white supremacy, the American church's greatest, original, and most persistent sin. White supremacy, the American church's greatest, original, and most persistent sin. Dwayne Terrence Lowens, Sr., in his dissertation at Marquette University for his Ph.D., this is a quote 
from the beginning of his dissertation. His dissertation was entitled, A God Worth Worshipping Toward a Critical Race Theology. This statement. Although the church is engaged in numerous attempts to remedy racism, theology still seems to witness to a God that stands relatively unopposed to the status quo of racial injustice and marginalization. This dissertation begins with the claim that Christian theology still operates from the normativity of whiteness. I will argue that although the church has made admirable progress with regard to racial justice, the attempts have been made at the surface. The underlying structural logic of white supremacy remains intact. Now, these are only two of the current voices inside the Christian community that are beginning to declare that the Christian church is rooted and has its and is systemically white supremacist. We're facing it and we've got to deal with this. And how are we going to deal with it honestly and how are we going to deal with it from a biblical perspective? That is critically important. And uh, you're, you're going to hear terms like uh, intersectionality, critical theory, critical racial theory. And they have become very vogue inside theological circles inside the Christian church. So much so that there are entire denominations that have made intersectionality and critical racial theory a part of their doctrinal statement. They have adjusted their basic doctrinal statement to include these two items. Southern Baptist Convention, a year ago, adopted intersectionality and critical race theory as a part of the Southern Baptist doctrine. So we're, we're, we're not going to be able to run and hide from this. We're going to have to address it. And Father has been speaking to me strongly about this over the last several days. And this morning just said, son, you've got to lead your family. You've got to lead the church family. Folks, we've got to lead. We can't react. We've got to lead. We can't react. We've got to lead. Amen? We've got to lead. And it's a part, a part of dealing with the culture in our heart, a part of dealing with being able to honestly deal with our pagan, sexualized culture is dealing with this in our heart because this has its roots in the pagan culture. And so we've, we've got to address it. We've got to deal with it. And, and um, uh, that's why... But true racial reconciliation is going to, uh, is it going to come through intersectionality and through critical racial theory? Is that where we're going to get there? No. Are we going to arrive there? Well, no. true racial reconciliation is only going to come if biblical principles are the foundation of the steps of action, and if those steps of action are being led by 
Holy Spirit motivation. Hear that again. True racial reconciliation is only going to happen if the steps of action are based in biblical principles and if those steps of actions are being motivated by Holy Spirit. So we're dealing with it from the inside out, not the outside in. If we are reacting to what's going on in our culture, we're not dealing with it from the inside out. And it's got to happen that way. Because it's rooted in the sinfulness of man's heart. So we got we to we ask three questions. What are the foundational principles of intersectionality and critical theory? How do these theories match with biblical principles? And how should biblical principles be applied to racial reconciliation? We've got to answer those three questions, and we've got to answer them honestly in our heart right here this morning. So let me give you some definition, okay? All right? We've got to look at some definitions. Okay, let's, what do we mean by intersectionality? What in the world does that mean? It's not talking about a sporting event. So we're having intersectional play in a football game, football teams, basketball. This, is, this intersectionality is a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of one's social, political identities might combine to unique modes of discrimination. Intersectionality has become a social theory that... Kimberly Crenshaw, in, in one of her papers in 1989, discriminizing the intersection, or demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex, a black feminist critique of anti-discrimination, doctrine and feminist theory, and anti-racist politics. That was the title of her paper. Don't make it short. Okay, she is a she's a professor at uh, uh, I believe it's Union University in New York and also at UCLA, and she is the one that that coined intersectionality. Now it has since taken its own legs and it's and it's gone several different directions, but its root is in this the belief that that uh, at, that feminism at the beginning was for middle class white women and it needed to begin embracing women of color and so there's this intersectionality between feminism and people of color as well as middle class women of America but it also integrates and so she's pulling all of these things together and it's called intersectionality. And the whole thing is supposed to be a social theory that describes how discrimination against one's um, sex, male, female, their color, their race, how it all, all interplays, intersectionality. Okay? Now, here's the problem. Intersectionality is founded upon 
the theory of uh, uh, a critical theory that as its origin, go ahead and go to the next slide for me. Critical theory that is now becoming known as critical racial theory. Critical theory has its origin back in the nineteen in the in the late night nineteen 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 eighteen into the nineteen twenties, and at the Institute of Social Research at Frankfurt School. Now that doesn't mean anything to you, but if I tell you that Frankfurt School was a school of Marxism and that Institute of Social Research was based upon the writings of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, and they're the ones that developed the critical theory based upon the writings of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, and that theory was to create a world that satisfies the needs and powers of human beings. That's a direct quote from one of the leaders of that institute and from his writings. Okay, so the whole thing is based upon what? It is human emancipation from domination and oppression that transforms contemporary capitalism based upon the philosophy of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. So critical theory is Marxist at its core. It is that basis that intersectionality is based upon. And so the whole, the whole theory that is being adopted is we're going to resolve and we're going to resolve racial prejudice and we're going to bring reconciliation and emancipation from racial domination and from white supremacy, quote unquote, we're going to do that through theories that are based upon Marxism and by removing capitalism because at its core, they want the redistribution of wealth. Now, here's the problem with all that. That whole theory is founded upon the same paradigm that was followed by Lenin, Mao Zedong. It's all based upon that same paradigm. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me, would you please? So here's our concerns. How, how does intersectionality and critical theory, critical racial theory, match with biblical principles? Well, we must address, we must address racial issues. There's no question whether we've got to address those issues or not. There's no question whether, whether we need to really bring healing into, and racial reconciliation. That's, that's, not, that's not being questioned. The concern is the fundamental basis that's, that's being used to address this. That's the issue. The concept of intersectionality, the concept of critical theory, the concept that is at the root and the base of Antifa and Black Lives Matters. That's the concern. The philosophical 
construct that they are using in these two are based upon a theory of the overthrow of government and based upon the theory of doing away with capitalism, doing away with free enterprise, and establishing a socialistic, communistic, Marxist form of government. And folks, we got to be honest. We got to be historically accurate and honest. It has never worked. It has never brought freedom. That construct has always brought greater bondage. That's the problem. <clears throat> but I have listened to multiple videos over the last weeks from Christians that are calling us white supremacists and saying we've got to use intersectionality and, and touting all of this, the whole rhetoric that comes out of this whole thing inside the church. And I'm going, wait a minute. That is taking the world's theories and bringing it into the church and saying the church has got to use the world's theories. And then they, to, to, do, to make it even a greater injustice, they will, they will do what... Everyone that has honestly studied Scripture knows you do not proof text Scripture. You don't go and pick a Scripture to fit what you're wanting it to say. And that's what they're doing. And they will take Scriptures and they will say, see, this is what it... And then they will say this. You know what? We have to understand the Bible itself is all about emancipation. That's true from sin because the man's heart is sinful, but that's not what they're talking about. And they completely refit Scripture to fit the narrative of intersectionality and critical racial theory. And dear ones, we must not get caught up in that distortion. So what is the answer? What does the Bible say? Let's look at it. The Old Testament, well, first of all, we've got to look at 2 Corinthians. Everyone turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. While you're getting there, dear ones, I, I know this is a completely different kind of message than I normally teach, particularly on Sunday morning. This is the kind of thing we would normally study on a Wednesday night. But God burdened my heart deeply for you that you would not get caught up in the distortion and the deception that's going on right now. But not only that, that you would see the biblical model for dealing with something that really must be answered. We really must answer it. I, don't, I do not want to see racial prejudice in our city. I don't want to see the racial breakdown between Hispanics, Latinos, and, and the Caucasians. I don't want to see it break down between the blacks in our community and the Hispanics and the Caucasians. I, I want to see healing. I, I, I want to see the love that's in our church family. I want to see that spread throughout our community. And so we got to have biblical answer. And, and, and for the church to fall on its knees and embrace 
the world's concepts and the world's answer, that is not the answer. That is just going to compound the problem. Jesus Christ has the answer. God's holy word has the answer. The Bible is not white supremacist. And the church, if it's truly the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not white supremacist either. Come on, amen? amen. It's not. So what does the Bible say? It said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself through Christ Jesus, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, and hath committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you through us. We pray ye in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This whole passage is about reconciliation. Reconciliation, first of all, horizontal. Reconciliation to God. If we're going to see racial reconciliation, then we have got to see a majority of our community reconciled to God. It starts there because it is a matter of a sinful heart. We've got to have people becoming new creation because when they become a new creation, they get a new heart. When they get a new heart, then they can love the way Jesus loves. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. What kind of love? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Amen? Amen? Amen. Starts there. It's got to start there. And so we've got to have revival so we can have racial reconciliation. The most beautiful example of this was the Pentecostal outpouring. The Pentecostal outpouring started at the beginning of the 20th century, 40 years after the Civil War. And what the legal and political declaration of emancipation could not do the outpouring of the Holy Spirit did because in the, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the, in the early years of the Pentecostal outpouring, blacks and whites were worshiping together, hugging one another, laying hands on one another, praying for one another. There was no separate black and white church. We were all worshiping together. Now it came later because we allowed the fire revival to cool a little bit and the heart of man began to turn and we got back to our and that and that's how the church of god in christ got started a black movement apart from the assembly of god and the church of god that we're a part of but when holy spirit was in control it was united isn't that amazing this is, this, it's got to start here. But look at the Old Testament with me, would you? Look at what the Old Testament did. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, the first couple, Adam and Eve, were the parents to all human race. 
They all had the same parents. And I had people say, so then where did the black people come from? Where did the Hispanic people come from? Where did the Asians come from? Where did, the, where did, where did all that come from? God. God started monkeying with the DNA in them. But they all had the same parents. That's what makes adoption kind of cool, you know? Families, Caucasian families adopting blacks or adopting Asians or vice versa. Come on, amen? amen. So they're all there. That's, that's cool. That's kind of like God's original design. Yeah. Yeah. But watch this. So then the flood happened, right? So now you've only got three couples left on the earth. Noah and Mrs. Noah and their kids, right? So now, the entire human race that covers the globe, we all come from those parents. That must be why the scripture says we're all of one blood. Genesis chapter 11, God scattered people over the face of the globe. God scattered them over the face of the globe. But we're all of one. Numbers 13, 1 to 3, is a very interesting story because Miriam, Moses' sister, and his brother Aaron, they get in trouble. And Miriam, she is stricken with leprosy as a punishment from God. You know what the whole thing was over? Moses' first wife, Zipporah, no one really knows exactly what happened to her. Most theologians suppose she must have passed away. But Moses took a second wife, and she was black. And Miriam didn't like it, bringing a black woman into the family. And God didn't like that she didn't like it. And she was punished. Just like right now. God would be really upset, church family, if we didn't welcome people of color with the same love and embrace that we would anyone else. See? Just God doesn't like it. Let's jump to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? The New Testament says in Acts 17 that every race and color of the same blood and the same father. We're all of the same blood and the same father. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 says that salvation includes all classes and all races. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10 says, The redeemed out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. I got to tell you, if you got a problem with worshiping with people of color here, you're going to have a big problem when you get to heaven. In fact, you may have a bigger problem getting to heaven. C. 
see, the scripture makes it really, really clear, doesn't it? So what's the conclusion then? What needs to be our conclusion? Lest I preach from now till tomorrow morning, let's get to a conclusion, right? <laughs> Psalm 139, 13 to 17 tells us clearly that we have all been woven in the womb by Almighty God, by the hand of Almighty God. That by Almighty God, listen to it again, by Almighty God, we have been woven into our mother's womb. That means Almighty God designed your DNA and your DNA determines your color and your race. So if you're Asian, that's by God's design. If you're Latino, that's by God's design. If you're black, that's by God's design. If you're European, Caucasian, that's by God's design. If you're American, Caucasian, like I am, and you're a Heinz 57, that's by God's design. I'm English, Irish, French, and I don't know what else may be thrown in there, okay? By God's design. It's by God's design. I came out of the womb like this. I didn't get to choose it. But I can choose my attitude about myself. Amen? And one of the attitudes that needs to be there is just because I'm Caucasian doesn't make me better or make me worse than anyone else. That, that my dear brothers and sisters of color, they're my brothers and sisters. Come on, amen? You know why? Because we've all had the same parents twice. Our daddy formed us in our mother's womb. First one. And then our daddy gave us new life when we were born again. So see, when I call you brother and sister, I mean that. You're my brother and sister. You know? Isn't that amazing? And it's amazing how we forget that. And it's amazing how we will we'll begin putting status on ourselves by whether we got our clothes at a Wally World special or, or we got it at Saks Fifth Avenue. Whether, whether, whether we, we have more worth and value because we're a CEO or whether we're the custodian that keeps the building clean and the office clean for that CEO. See, those, those things don't make us better or worse as human beings. They don't give us more or less value, just different function in, in God's world. And when we, start, when we start confusing that and distorting that, then we've lost the biblical perspective. My identity and my worth and value has nothing to do with how much money I make, the kind of clothes I wear, the position I have, the career that I have, has nothing to do with anything about even the color of my skin. Now, I want to stop. Okay. Put a pause right there. Don't lose it. Put a pause right there. 
Each one of those people of color have a unique culture. Just like my family grew up with a unique culture. We raised our kids in the context of a unique culture. Doesn't mean my culture is better than your culture. It just means my culture is probably different than your culture. Not right or wrong, just different. And learning to be able to enjoy and embrace each other's culture is okay. Do I really have to like hip-hop music to say I love and embrace you as an equal human being and I see value and worth in you? I hope not because my ears don't get it. Okay? But if you think that's bad, my ears don't get the music that my grandkids are writing right now either. I can acknowledge this amazing stuff. It's just my ears don't, don't you know what I'm saying? That doesn't mean it's better or worse. It just means it's different. And learning, I wish I could take what God's doing in my heart right now and I could put it in your heart. Learning to see value and worth in one another is rooted in our Lord Jesus Christ and his love and worth and value that he gives to every one of us. And though our culture is different, and though our skin pigment is different, we all carry, we all have the same papa. And here's the next thing. We've got to embrace the fact that we're, that we're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, there's going to be racial prejudice in the world. Doesn't mean I have to embrace it. Doesn't mean I have to promote it. Doesn't mean I have to participate in it. But the only way we're going to eradicate racial prejudice and have full racial reconciliation is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and sets up his throne. And for those 1,000 years, it will be perfect. Between now and then, every one of us in our own heart have to deal with our own heart about our prejudices and about what we see. And this goes right back to what we were talking about last Sunday. We have got to be willing to come to the altar of Almighty God and humble ourselves and say, God, anything of this culture that is in me, that is displeasing to you, that violates you, take it out of my heart, and that has to do with this issue we're talking about right now. And here's the last thing. Would you stand with me, please? Worship team, please come. And by the way, you guys are doing awesome even though you're short on numbers today. Look here. This is the last point, and it may be the most important point that you will hear today. It is my God-given responsibility to look at each and every one of you as a member of my family. 
because we got the same daddy. And you're going to be uniquely you just like I'm uniquely me. Okay? And I'll be honest with you, I got foibles and warts and weirdness. But don't tell anybody, so do you. Okay? Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Do you see why the church must not let the theories and philosophies of the world come in and distort the biblical perspective? Because it will destroy everything. But when, when, but when the church will get on its face, but listen, I got to tell you, we've got this serious problem in Christianity in America today because the church in America is lukewarm. We are Laodicean and we need a revival of Almighty God so that our hearts can get right with Almighty God the way it's supposed to be. We got to have that. And then we'll start loving the way Jesus loves and the issue will be resolved. I've, I've shared my heart with you today. I'm going to ask you to worship with me just a little bit. And then let's have prayer together. But let's worship a little bit. Would you join me? Worship team, please lead us.